Genesis 6, 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Today we will talk about fallen angels and the Nephilim. This is the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever want to email me, you can do so. Doctrine for the number four doxology at gmail.com. And I'm also on Instagram at the real bear martin. Now, today's episode is if you're familiar with this fallen angels and the Nephilim, you know that this is a rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. There's tons of stuff out there on these passages and and lots of different interpretations. And so this is not going to be a a doctrinal stance. I mean, this is you can consider this sort of a bonus episode because this podcast copies the material that I teach in a Sunday school class at church and we've got a little two week break over Christmas and the New Year because a lot of people are out of town and stuff like that. And so obviously our church has service, but we don't have life groups. And so the the next topic in our Doctrine for Doxology discussion would go, get started with creation. And so there's several episodes that are all sort of tied in to creation. So I didn't want to start one episode and then have a two-week break and then then continue on with creation. So a few little bonus episodes here around the Christmas holidays. So this one is we're going to start in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Okay. And so let, let me read that for us and that'll kind of kick us off. All right. So 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, that's verse 19, and that's going to be our key phrase. What does it mean that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Okay, verse 20 says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so that's our uh, that's our kickoff text, and so there's three different views as to three three main ones. I mean, there, you can break these down into lots of other ones, of course, but three main views that I'll just put forward here for this phrase. And Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What does this mean? Who are the spirits in prison? That type of thing. So the first view I'll put forward is that Christ goes and offers a second chance to those that are in hell. Now, this, I believe, is clearly unbiblical, so I, I just reject this outright, but it is a view that is put forward for an interpretation of this passage. So when Jesus speaks of the rich man and Lazarus, when Jesus is telling this story, remember Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom or paradise, and the rich man was in Hades or hell. And so Abraham says to the rich man in that story, Abraham says this, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So there's this great chasm between heaven and hell. Also, Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So again, I completely reject the idea that that some people are given this second chance after 
they die to accept the truth of Jesus Christ. All right? Now, that's the first view. The second, the, the next two, I believe, have a lot of merit, okay? And so I'm going to pick one of these today and just basically here's what I'm doing. I'm saying, okay, let's assume that one of these views, and I'll tell you which one, is correct. Why would someone think that? Giving, given the Bible, okay? So so trying to properly interpret the Bible, why would someone hold to that view? So I'm basically going to pick a view and def- and try to defend it, okay? So let me mention the, the second view, and it is that these spirits, the spirits that Jesus proclaimed to in prison, are unsaved humans of Noah's day, okay? So sometimes humans in the Bible are referred to as spirits, although mostly in the New Testament, spirits refer to supernatural beings or angelic beings, certainly uh, the, the spirit of God, okay? So there's different ways that the spirit or spirits is used. And, and I'm not going to go into a ton of details about it, but certainly there it has merit, and I there's lots of godly men and women that hold that view, okay? The third view, the one that we're going to talk about mostly today, is that these spirits are fallen angels, okay? More specifically, the spirits in prison are fallen angels from the time of Noah. These angels sinned by... Mate, we'll just say mating in some way with women. So you, it could be through demon possession. Um, something happened in a in a sexually immoral way, and I'm not sure how that works between a spirit and a human. But something happened in that regard, and that was a sin that these angels committed, and this produced giant offspring that the Bible calls the Nephilim. Okay, now. Why would someone, if you were reading 1 Peter 3 and you came to this verse that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison, why would someone even think that this is referring to fallen angels? That's kind of the question that I want to answer today. Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to look for clues of what Peter is referring to. What What is G, uh, Peter talking about? When, when he's saying Jesus proclaimed to these spirits in prison, who could this possibly be? Well, if you just keep reading the next verse, verse 20 there talks about in the days of Noah. And so being a, a good Bible student, we need to go back and refresh ourselves about what was happening, what possibly happened in the days of Noah. And so in Genesis 6, this is the the passage about Noah, and it's going to lead into the flood. So Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this is the first time we read of Noah. The verses before that, though, are very interesting and apply to our discussion. Genesis 6, 1 through 5 is what I'm going to read now, okay? When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. Now, this this phrase came into the daughters of man, that is a that is a a, a way of saying some sort of sexual activity, okay? So, the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, So a few times here, we see the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and producing children. These children were the Nephilim, the, the mighty men of renown. Okay, So let me just mention that there, the other view, the, the human-only view of this phrase, the, the sons of God and the daughters of men, if, it's, if sons of God are not fallen angels... Another very popular view that has, again, a lot of merit. I'm not trying to say that other people are wrong because this is a very difficult phrase and, and passage to interpret. But the, the other view would be, would be that the sons of God refer to the line of Seth and the daughters of men refer to the line of Cain. And so there, there's the, this righteous line of Seth and the and the line of Cain went towards wickedness and evil, and so when the righteous marry and intermingle with the unrighteous, then you get wickedness. And so that's that's the other thought that the sons of God refers to the line of Seth. So I just want to mention that um, today, for our purposes, we're going to assume that the sons of God means fallen angels. We're we're just kind of going through that train of thought. Why would someone think this? Is there any biblical defense for it? Okay. Now, regarding angels marrying and producing children, what is a verse that you may think of that would contradict this idea? Certainly, we want to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so, in Matthew 22, 30, and in the Synoptic Gospels, this is in Mark and Luke as well, but in Matthew 22, 30, Jesus says, For in the resurrection they neither marry or nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, okay? And so if if angels do not marry or given or are given in marriage, then this you know, why why are we going to take that the sons of God are angels and they're somehow uh mating with the daughters of men? Well, I think in the context here, this is when the Sadducees come to Jesus and they're trying to trick him. So they're putting together this hypothetical story of a woman who marries a man, the man dies, and so she marries the man's brother. And then he dies, and she marries the next brother. And so there's seven brothers, and this woman marries them all. When she gets to heaven, who is she going to be married to? That's, that's kind of the question that the Sadducees put together, and that's where Jesus says in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay? Now, the, the pushback here, we, this, does, this is not referring to, is it possible for angels to somehow uh, intermingle in a sexually immoral way with human beings, okay? This is not, that's not the context. This is more of talking about a legal uh, relationship, a, a legal standing. Who is this woman going to be like legally bound to and married to in heaven? And Jesus is saying, "There's we don't have any of that in heaven. They're they're like the angels. So it's not saying that there's there's no possibility that it could ever happen that angels could fall. It's and and sin in in that way with human beings. It's just saying that in heaven we don't have these these marriages. Okay. So that's kind of the pushback. And so our our argument still holds up. We're still saying, okay, there's I can see how someone." could believe that these the sons of God are fallen angels. Now, we we got to think about other passages in the Bible that talk about angels stepping out of line, angels sinning in some way. In 2 Peter 2:4, 2, 
Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay, that's 2 Peter 2 4. When he says that he cast them into hell, that the word translated hell there is actually a different word, and it's only used right here in the Bible, and the, the word is Tartarus. John MacArthur says in the, in the MacArthur Study Bible, he writes about this word, Peter borrows a word from Greek mythology for hell, Tartarus. The Greeks taught that Tartarus was a place lower than Hades, reserved for the most wicked of human beings, gods, and demons. The Jews eventually came to use this term to describe the place where fallen angels were sent. It defined for them the lowest hell, the deepest pit, the most terrible place of torture and eternal suffering. So, so far, these spirits are said to be in prison. Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then in the above verse, they are in Tartarus, which is a deep, gloomy pit in the very pits of hell. Now, is there any any other Bible verse you can think of where demons are scared to be cast into a deep, gloomy pit? Well, in Luke 8, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man, and the, the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, and Jesus then asked them, "'What is your name?' And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him, that is, the demons begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So they begged Jesus not to command them into the abyss, into this deep pit. In fact, that same Greek word translated abyss here in Revelation is translated the bottomless pit. And we we see this a lot of times in Revelation, and that is certainly referring to where Satan and the demons are bound. Some in, in Revelation, sometimes the these demons are are waiting in the bottomless pit and they are released for a short time. And so this also holds up to the idea that that some demons are bound right now in a in a bottomless pit okay and so that's that's the idea that Jesus is speaking possibly to these spirits in prison that are bound in gloomy chains of darkness that's another biblical phrase to describe it so that's that's the idea of spirits being in prison you know how how can we think of this as being fallen angels now another connection that I want to make here is that in the, our opening passage, 1 Peter 3, there's a connection to the days of Noah. Well, in 2 Peter 2.4, we have that same connection. So let me read 2.4 and, and continuing on in, in verses 5 and 6. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. So Peter is giving several examples of the ungodly that step out of line and and go against God, and they are punished, okay? So he links here, though, these the sin of these angels to the time of Noah and also to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah is known for the, its homosexuality, and God punished them, okay? That's in Genesis 19. You can you can read that story, but uh, so so there's sexual sin there. Another passage about angels sinning that also links Sodom and Gomorrah is Jude six and seven. So in in, in those verses, 
and the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So again, same concept there in Jude 6. Verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here we have angels who left their own position of authority, and he's and then he links them. He says, likewise, he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So I think here, this is a solid connection between the angels. What does it mean that they left their own position of authority? And Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they likewise, that word likewise connects the angels to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and how are they connected? Sexual immorality in some way. And, the, and it says they pursued, both of them, the angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, pursued unnatural desire. Literally in the Greek there, it, it means different flesh, okay? So both the angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah refused to act in accordance to God's design, right? And so this sexual sin, if you will, by the fallen angels, this brings forward the Nephilim. Genesis 6, 4 says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So that's how the Nephilim were made, when the sons of God come into the daughters of men. Okay, and so the, we have the Nephilim. Now, who are the Nephilim? They are these giants. They are also called the sons of Anak or the Anakim. Okay, so we read of this, we, we get this connection in Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33. And the context here is that there's 12 spies sent out by Israel into the promised land. And this is a familiar story. Ten of the spies give a negative report, and then Joshua and Caleb give a positive report. They say, we can take the land. God is with us. But 10 spies gave a negative report, and that's when the people do not trust God, and they are punished, and they have to wander in the wilderness. So this is the report here, Numbers 13, 32, and 33. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So there were other giant clans that the Israelites encountered as well, and, and some of these clans are referred to as the Rephaim. So the, the Nephilim, the Anakim, the Rephaim, these are all giant, these all refer to giants, okay? So they're, they're all linked in that way. In Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11, it says the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they also are counted as Rephaim. So I know there's tons of words, I'm, weird words I'm throwing out there. Um, and so, but anyway, this, what I'm doing is showing you that the Anakim, the Nephilim, that they're counted as the Rephaim, and this is all giant 
Uh, this is our referring to giants, okay? As the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they travel through Sihon and Og, and the Lord delivers Sihon and Og over to the Israelites. And we read this in, in Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3. We, you can read about this. But in Deuteronomy 3, 1, it says, Then we turned and went up to the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. Now, Og, the king of Bashan, was Rephaim. He was a giant, okay? Deuteronomy 3.11, For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Now, one cubit is thought to be around 18 inches, and this would make Og's bed around 13 feet long, okay? And in in Deuteronomy 3.13, it says, All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Again, this was a a land of giants, and Og was the, the king of those in Bashan. Now, remember that word, Bashan. All right, so as we move forward through the, the conquest of the promised land, Joshua 11, 21 and 22 says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So when they when the Israelites come into the promised land led by Joshua. They wipe out all of the Anakim, but some of the some of them remain in a few cities. One of particular interest is Gath. Okay, so there's a few giants left, and some are in Gath. Now, who was from Gath? That is Goliath. First Samuel seventeen four, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So after years of war, obviously David slays Goliath. After years of war with the Philistines, David finally conquers them, and this includes the giants. So in 1 Chronicles 20, verses 4 through 8, we have a list of four giants and like a very brief story of how they were defeated, and these giants were called the descendants of Rapha, which is linked to the Rephaim, okay? And so in 1 Chronicles 28, it says, These were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And so the defeat of these giants represents a cleansing or purging of the promised land from this evil. Again, these giants are linked with the sin of angels into the daughters of men, and it creates these these giants. And so the, the promised land is eventually through the conquest of Joshua, and then also through David's Uh, David's reign, he cleanses the land of these giants. They are wiped out, okay? So what I think is important here is we have to realize that these giants are not just big people that are scary. I think that the Bible is telling us that there is a there's a demonic warfare there's a, a deeper level when David defeats Goliath there there's spiritual warfare there going on as well as just a physical encounter between a boy and a and a giant okay there's 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 a deeper deeper meaning to the story and and it's on the the spiritual level there's there's demonic activity and this is the Lord showing that he has power 
over these these demons that are basically leading nations and groups of people against the people of God. Okay, so they're they're at war with the things of God. Think about it in in that way. And so when we think about Jesus, how, what's what's one of the ways that Jesus demonstrated that His kingdom has come? Just like the Israelites go in and and take the promised land, and just like David. It, it, it cleanses the land of giants and defeats Goliath. How, what is Jesus doing that is that's similar? What 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 about that points us to Jesus? And Luke eleven eighteen through twenty. This is when Jesus is, is casting out demons, and the Jewish leaders are accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So Jesus says this: And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So one of the ways that Jesus displays that he brings in the kingdom of God is by coming in and cleansing. He he went through all the towns and villages in in Israel, okay? Now obviously not every single one, but he is he his ministry in the three and a half years that that of his earthly ministry, certainly he is he is preaching and teaching. But the other thing he's doing is healing the sickness and casting out demons. This this displays that he is bringing in the kingdom of God. So now, with all of that in mind, I want us to hop back in. I want us to hop into a time machine. Being stuck in 2023 and and seeing the you know the world and reading the Bible even with the mindset of someone living in 2023 is different than someone living in the first century in the time of Jesus in the time when First Peter and Second Peter and Jude were written. And so, if you lived in that time period, what would what would be different about your reading experience, or if you heard this read to you in the in the local synagogue, you know what would you be thinking about? They were a different culture. There's so many times in the Bible that we skim over names of cities and names of mountains and genealogies and people groups because these words mean nothing to us. They're just hard words to pronounce that are in the Bible, so we just kind of get through them. But to the people reading in that time, like like I live in North Carolina, so if you make references to Raleigh or Charlotte or Wilmington or whatever, I, I'm able to, I know what what's going on there and how those cities relate to each other and kind of the identity that each city has and, and different things about that. And so th- that's, that's how we have to think about the Bible. Every time we encounter a word of a city or the name of a mountain, we have to keep in mind how is this used and what are some other names for that, D- different things like that, okay? And so that's, I want us to try to step into the mind of a first century reader. This brings us to a a popular writing of the time. When I was teaching this in Sunday school class, I said, this would, you know, in today's culture, if someone mentions a a name or whatever from the Lion King, you know, you you we automatically we've all basically seen the Lion King, and so you can make references because that's a general story that most people know about. Okay, so what would be the Lion King type of stuff 
for a first century Jew or Christian? Well, one of those, one of the books that was very popular among both groups, the Jews and the Christians in the first century, is called the Book of Enoch, or another another name for it is First Enoch. Now, several disclaimers here, so listen very carefully to me. I am not saying that the Book of Enoch should be considered Scripture. I am not saying we should read Enoch and trust everything in it. And I am not saying that I believe Enoch actually wrote it, okay? So the, the what First Enoch or the book of Enoch is supposed to be about is basically the teachings of Enoch mentioned in, in Genesis. It's his, it's his teachings, and those were, were passed down and then eventually recorded, okay? So I'm not getting all into the history of how the book of Enoch came together or anything like that. The main thing that I want you to know is that the book of Enoch was a very popular book among the Jews and Christians in the uh, a few hundred years like during the time of Christ. So leading up to the time of Christ and a few hundred years afterward, it was a very popular book. Erdman's commentary on the Bible, it has a little section where it talks about the book of Enoch, and it says this, quote, It has always been known that the book of Enoch enjoyed a high reputation among the early Christians. The New Testament epistle of Jude even provides a citation of Enoch 1.9. So Jude quotes Enoch, and I'll give you that in just a second. If we scan the Christian literature of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, we find no lack of Enoch quotations and allusions, and these are uniformly favorable, occasionally indicating that the author accepted Enoch as authoritative scripture. So in in the early days, okay, the, the first few centuries, some people, some Christians, were accepting Enoch as scripture. So it, it had at least that type of standing, a, a favorable standing. It was quoted sometimes or alluded to, and so it was referenced a lot by Jews and Christians. Okay, that's that's the main thing I want you to know about the book of Enoch, because we're trying to put ourselves in the mind of a first century person, okay? Also, the book of Enoch was written before Christ. So there were some manuscripts found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls that contained the book of Enoch, and these were dated earlier than the first century AD. So this is written before Christ. Now, Jude quotes Enoch 1.9. In Jude 14 and 15, it says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, whew, that's a tongue twister with all the ungodlies in there. First Enoch one nine says, And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude basically quotes Enoch one nine. So it had a powerful standing for the, the Christians in the first century. So when we're thinking about our First Peter 3 passage where Jesus proclaims to the spirits in prison, and then we think of the, the days of Noah and the sons of God coming into the daughters of men, it doesn't really matter how old a certain interpretation of that passage is, okay? I, I'm, so I'm not just saying, well, the oldest interpretation is that sons of God were fallen angels, so that's the one we should stick with, because just because it's an, an older interpretation 
doesn't necessarily mean it's it's a right one. So that's not my argument here. If we're trying to think like a person in the first century when the book of Enoch was very popular, we have to consider what the book of Enoch tells us about angels in the time of Noah, because that it, it, it kind of fills in some gaps in the story, okay? So first Enoch 6, verses 1 through 6 say this, And it came to pass in those days when the children of men had multiplied, that there were born to them daughters fair and beautiful. And the watchers, by the way, the watchers here are talking about angels. In, in the book of Daniel, angels are called watchers as well, okay? And the watchers, the children of heaven, looked at them and desired them. And they said to each other, come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men and let us beget children for ourselves. But Shimehaza, who was their leader, said, I worry that you may not be willing to go through with this deed, and I alone may end up paying the penalty for committing a great sin. They all answered him, Let us all swear an oath, binding one another with solemn imprecations, that we will not deviate from this plan until we commit this deed. So they all swore together, binding each other by solemn imprecations. There were two hundred of them who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. So I told you to remember Bashan, and you also need to remember Mount Hermon. So these these angels that have decided to take wives from the daughters of men and beget children for themselves, they are going to descend and, and kind of the gateway, their gateway onto the earth is through Mount Hermon. Now, a few verses later in First Enoch 7, verses 1 and 2, it says, These then and the others all took wives for themselves from whomever they chose, and they began to go into them, and they defiled themselves with them. They began teaching them sorcery and spellcasting, and they showed them the cutting of roots and herbs. The women became pregnant by them and bore to them gigantic offspring of three kinds. Giants were born to them, and the Nephilim were born to them on the earth, and the Eliud were, were their offspring. Okay, so a few verses later, this is sort of a summary verse of what's taken place, and, and you also find a similar verse in Genesis 6, talking about the, what the world was like before, um, before Noah's flood. It says this, First Enoch 8.2 says, The result was great wickedness on the earth. Men committed fornication and went astray, becoming corrupt in all their ways. Okay, so again, very, very similar story, kind of fills in some more gaps of the Genesis 6 account of the days of Noah. Okay, and so this is a popular book. This would be on the minds of a first century reader. Now, I told you to remember Mount Hermon. This is the area at the time of this area at the time of Christ. Mount Hermon, the the region around that area was a a pagan center of worship. There were fertility gods that were thought to um, go from from uh, the the earth into hell um, that and and pass in through different caves back onto the earth. So during the winter they would like hide in the caves and then they would come out of the caves. So this was like the gateway to hell here at the base of Mount Hermon in this area of Bashan, okay? So that's those are all related. In the Old Testament, Mount Hermon is, again, the region of Bashan, and remember, Og was the king of Bashan, and he was a giant. In Psalm 22, I found this interesting when I started researching this and coming across 
Bashan, um, I, I, I just recognized that word, and it's from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is regarded as a prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's lots of language in there that, that points to uh, a crucifixion. But in Psalm 22, 12 and 13, it says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So I thought it was interesting that on the cross, if this is a prophecy about Jesus being crucified, he says, these strong bulls of Bashan surround me, and they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And I think about if if, if Bashan is related to this demonic activity and this, this gateway of, of hell there at the base of Mount Hermon, then this is, this is like demons surrounding Jesus, thinking that they have won as Jesus is being crucified, and certainly they haven't won. Um, but in, uh, there's more, okay? But wait, there's more. At the base of Mount Hermon, in the region of Bashan, was a town called, in the time of Jesus, Caesarea Philippi. So is there anything, any correlation to Caesarea Philippi and the gates of hell? Absolutely. This is Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus was literally standing at an area in that time that was thought to be a the gateway of, de- uh, of demons to come to the earth. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my kingdom. So this is a, a bold statement by Jesus right in that area. So when it says that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison, I think this is a proclamation of victory over them. If we're, if we're taking all of this into account, again, I, I know I'm making a lot of assumptions here in just kind of picking a view and, and walking through that, but if we're going to say that this is the correct interpretation, that the sons of God were these fallen angels, as they, as they create offspring, they, they promote wickedness. They're, they're enticing men towards wickedness. In, in the, the Enoch account, they're teaching men uh, the, the evil arts, so to speak, sorcery and spellcasting and it, things like that is what the book of Enoch relates to. And their goal was not for the good of mankind, it was to destroy mankind. It was, it was evil against man, and Jesus has, has proclaimed victory over them. He has defeated them, and, and Jesus is, is for our good. Jesus restores us to the place that, where God created us to be, okay? And so that's his proclamation of victory. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, Okay. So, in conclusion, over the past three weeks now, we have discussed angels and demons. Hopefully, we are more aware of the spiritual warfare undergirding all of life. The Bible addresses this spiritual warfare alongside of physical problems in life. So, for an example, Goliath is not just a, a big, scary guy. I believe the Bible is showing us there's, there's demonic activity behind these giants and, and Goliath's mockery of the God of Israel. Angels and humans alike, we, we are tempted to go after the things God has not given us. We, we've seen that when it relates to the angels and also the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, but this concept applies to, to all of us as well. Instead of eating of all of the good fruit in the garden that God had provided, 
Adam and Eve desired the fruit God had forbidden. Instead of staying within their own positions of authority, some angels left their proper dwelling and sinned. Instead of looking to Scripture for knowledge, we seek astrology or tarot cards or a new word from a modern prophet. So there's lots of ways that we go against or beyond what God has given us. When we do so, we step outside of God's will for our life, and we are sinning. Throughout the Bible, we are encouraged to be faithful to the Lord. And this was the repetitive cry to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Do not go after idols. Do not worship Baal. Trust in Yahweh, the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord. That, that is the, the cry there. And there's a, but there's a constant pull to place your trust in something or someone else. The Bible says, be faithful to God, trust his purposes. So scripture encourages us to be faithful and shows us over and over again in many different ways that our faith is in the most high God, Yahweh, the Lord, the one who conquers every evil. Okay, so our closing scripture today, we started with 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Now, in verse 21, there is a great little verse about baptism and we will we will get to that okay so i'm not i'm not i hate to skip over verses um but we will get to that eventually when we talk about baptism but when we think about all of these the fallen angels and everything we've discussed today this passage that kicked us off also has a great little verse to to wrap us up first peter 3:22 says this is talking about jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him <laughs>